0: Welcome back, friends, to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I am so happy that you are joining us for this episode. You are going to love this one. Joining me today are two incredible women. The first is my holy wife, Tvora Buxbaum, and she will be joining me on this episode because we are interviewing the one and only Adrian Gold Davis. Adrienne Gold Davis, she is one of the most sought after speakers in the Jewish speaking circuit today, especially in the women speaking circuit. She is one of the leaders of the organization called Momentum. And if you're not familiar with Momentum, it's an amazing organization seeking to inspire women to transform themselves, transform their families, their communities, and the world. And what they're most famous for is their trips to Israel. Many people know it as the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project. That's what they used to be called. Now they're called Momentum. But they bring these women on a 10-day trip to Israel, and it's inspiring. And they come back moved and motivated and and excited to make an impact on their families and, and on their communities And um, Adrian Gold Davis is one of the leaders and the speakers that they often encounter. And anyone that meets Adrian Gold Davis just falls in love with her and her story and her message. And she's going to be joining us today. Uh, Dvora, my wife, and Adrian have traveled together, they've led trips together. And therefore, I thought it would be great to bring Dvora on as well to have. A very very dynamic and exciting conversation, and we cover so much. We speak about fashion, and we speak about Adrian's story, and we speak about parenting, and we even speak about sushi. All sorts of different, all sorts of different things. It's it's just a fascinating conversation, and uh, you're going to enjoy it, and you're going to fall in love. With Adrian, just like uh, just like all who meet her. So, without further ado, I welcome everyone. If this is the first time you're joining us, or if you've listened to the podcast before, welcome! And without further ado, here is our conversation with the one and only Adrian Gold Davis. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism the depth of Jewish wisdom and how to live a more empowered life. So I've got some exciting news to share with you before we begin today's episode. My new book is available. As you can hear, I'm pretty excited about it. It is called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life, and it is a guidebook to discovering your inner world and unique Purpose. So, this is a book that is filled with deep Jewish wisdom, Jewish mysticism. It's got psychology in there, thoughts from today's top thought leaders, my own personal experiences. And really, each chapter is filled with so much, so many practical tools and habits to reach self-mastery, and to become the best version of ourselves. Uh, If you've listened to this podcast in the past, I've taught many times on this idea that we all have these four elements inside of us that are compared to fire, wind, water, and earth and all of our inner struggles, all of the barriers that keep us from becoming our best versions can be boiled down to struggles that happen within each of those inner elements. So the book explores those in detail and really how to get past that and discover our unique purpose, our unique place in this world, because we all have one. So again, the book is called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. You can check it out on our website, Love Experience website, levx.org. You can check it out on the publisher's website, mosaicopress.com or wherever Jewish books are sold. Just check it out because you'll enjoy it. It's called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. Read it, share it with the world. The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. Okay, so this is a wonderful privilege to have Adrian Gold Davis on our uh, podcast, and it's a, 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 also a great pleasure to have my wife Devora here with us as well, so this is really going to be a great conversation, and there's, there are many things that the three of us have in common. What's that? First of all, we're all Jewish educators, okay, but... Adrian was also a fashionista, fashion blogger, fashion TV host, turned Jewish educator. Mm-hmm. My wife, Dvora, is very famous. Everyone knows that she is herself a fashionista, one of the most fashionable
1: <laughs> rabbits This is the first I'm hearing. Thanks for letting have. me know.
0: And for me, <laughs> for me, my mother also works in the fashion industry. Oh. So we can pretty much just talk about fashion this entire time.
2: We could, but I did <laughs> run far and fast from it. Although I have to say, you're right, because some of my finest things your wife turned me on to with AliExpress. Uh-huh. So I have to yeah, say, we,
0: we aim high, we set the bar high with AliExpress.
2: Exactly. This is and my little I love those five dollar earrings. You've changed my life, literally. Yes,
1: the best. <laughs> it's all about looking fab without spending the money.
2: That's all.
0: We have now turned the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast into the Empowered Fashion Podcast.
2: <laughs> I don't know. By Rabbi
0: not- Shlomo
2: <laughs> Isn't there something to be said about beautifying the mitzvah? And if we move through our lives as a mitzvah and we beautify ourselves, are we not just kinder mitzvah?
0: Well, I guess, why, why don't we start there? And uh, I guess I would ask you, in what way have you seen your previous career in that world of fashion? And how has that translated for you into the space that you are now dealing with women and educating them and teaching them?
2: Well, you know, let's go to the, the most baseline of it all. It's a very interesting thing. Um, you know, those who have heard me speak before, and especially about my trajectory from fashion or from, from Prada to prayer, as I like to think of it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, know the story of my very shaky and low self-esteem in terms of how I looked and how it was reinforced constantly by people, you know, calling into the television studio or writing me saying, you know, you're not very pretty, but we just love looking at you. You know, you're a pleasure to look at, but you know, you could lose 20 pounds or, you know, it's so great to see such an average Jewish looking face have her own television show. So, you know, everything, at, 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 no matter how uh, famous, in quotations, air quotes, I became in Canada for my, my work in the fashion industry, it always ran side by side with people's commentary about my not being such a looker, which is really interesting. Hmm. And in many ways, I think that my obsession with uh, beautifying myself and beautifying the world was a very deep internal struggle that I um, projected outwards, feeling perhaps that everybody felt as um, you know mediocre and average or below average as I did. And so if you could just, <coughs> <coughs> please pardon me, I have allergies. If you could just sort of you know do this with your hair or or wear this outfit or or, or dress this provocatively, nobody will notice that you're really very mediocre. And, and so in some ways, my passion for fashion was driven by a lack of self-esteem. And I think I was successful because I was not just prescriptive, you should wear this, you should wear that. But I was also telling people, here's how to look thinner, taller, shorter, fatter, whatever you wanted. And, and, and how did I know that? Because that was my MO. And when I made the transition, um, after, you know, 400 episodes of a daily television show after, you know, 10 years of being on live television in different capacities, talking about style and fashion, and fell in love with all things Jewish, I started to teach. I remember going to the head of the the community that I wanted to go to and said, um, I want to teach Torah the way I've been taught. I was 40 years old. And he said, he sort of laughed and I said, come on. you learned in your own teachings that if you know Aleph, just teach Aleph. And people are going to come and want to hear me because they're going to say, what is this fashionista doing talking about God? And my gamble was correct. But I tell you this story because inevitably two or three classes into a session, I would say, I I began by saying, here's, this is a five-part session on X or Y. Three weeks into it, inevitably, the women would say things like this to me. Did you get new hair? Are you wearing different makeup? Oh my gosh, you look fantastic. It's like you're aging backwards. Did you have a facial? Did you get Botox? Things like this. And it became very, very clear to me, very clear to me that as I was evolving and changing and beautifying the inside of myself, as I was decorating my soul as it were, it was having a direct and correlative impact on my physical presence. So the thing that I'd spent all of those years desperately trying to correct and kind of um, uh, add on to or or deceive people from seeing, suddenly people were saying, you've never looked better. Mm. And I came to understand that the principle of chain of internal sweetness and beauty does have an animating impact on how you look in the world. So now as a Torah teacher, instead of hearing, you know, you're so average, but we love you anyway. I was getting, wow. And it was always a few classes in, and I would say, you know, I look exactly the same, haven't lost a pound, haven't changed a thing, but you're you, what you're falling in love with is what's coming out of my mouth. And that's making you associate the beauty that is our birthright with my face. Hmm. So I call it vitamin T, (laughs) vitamin
0: Vitamin Torah,
2: spiritual Botox. I did
0: see that title of your podcast and I was wondering about spiritual Botox like yeah. you know, what, what is that, but you know I would love to hear Dvar also speak to that because it, it is interesting it's an interesting balance that you find because even in the Torah there was a lot of emphasis, even if you look at like the temple. So there was so much emphasis on the gold and the silver and the fancy materials and everything and the Cohen Gadol was someone who had the high priest had to be someone with a presence, his clothes were I mean you know he looked like a baller when he'd come into to the temple you know and it was so there is that that emphasis and then you do see, even in Jewish leadership, you know, again, I don't I don't know that we know whether, you know, uh, we know that, ya- we know Jacob, right? We know Yaakov Avinu was was a good looking guy. We know he was beautiful. The Talmud says that he had the beauty of Adam, right? We know that many of our matriarchs mm-hmm. are complimented on their beauty. So the Torah definitely does put a certain emphasis on sort of that external beauty. But I think the way you're saying it is, yeah. But that's but without the inner beauty, then it's just a corpse. Then it's just you know a very beautiful but an empty shell of something. Well, uh, I'm not telling you
2: anything you don't already know. Obviously, Rabbi and Robinson, Um, But I mean, the model for that—that that whole principle of women who are called beautiful in the Torah are not called beautiful unless they are also internally evolved and attractive. And I think that what where the missing piece was for me was that my internal world had not been honed and refined and shined and sparkled. And I think that, um, you know, when, when we consider, as, as you're you're speaking with the Mishkan and with the temple, uh, this idea that the inside and the outside have to at least correlate or match um, is the thing that makes beauty by definition beauty, that one without the other is kind of hollow and lame. Um it was uh so it put to rest becoming more involved spiritually, becoming more Jewishly passionate, was the anecdote that no amount of makeup or no fabulous clothes or no amount of you know mini skirts could ever accomplish. And now at 62, I feel exponentially more beautiful than I did at 32. And 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 I think objectively I am. Don't worry, you don't have to look, Rabbi, but, but you <laughs> tell me more. have I ever looked better? I think not.
1: You have never looked better. you really <laughs> never looked better, Adrian. You look fabulous. The truth is you always look fabulous. Since the day I met you, you always look fabulous. You always have a certain charm. I think it ch- comes through in your real smile and in your eyes, that's the truth. Um, so, you, but you before. do really, you look amazing. And um, it's beautiful what you're saying. I think what I'm thinking about, and I'm looking from it almost through a different lens, I, I completely agree 100% to what you're saying. And also, I think there is something to be said about sometimes putting on the clothing, um, whether it be a step up in modesty or a step up in you know kicking it up a notch from the sweatpants and who knows what top to just feeling better, which then also has the impact on the way we're feeling internally. So I think it's almost like both <laughs> those pieces to the puzzle. Yeah, the internal needs to be worked on and meet the self esteem and all the pieces and. Torah certainly can help all those things, but also the things that we do put on our body and how we do present ourselves physically has a tremendous impact.
2: Certainly. Well, we know that the external awakens the internal and that we tend to live up to the image we're putting out there. Um, But when I think about the image I was putting out there, what I did was I used deliberately provocative clothing. Mm -hmm. as a way to distract people from seeing what I thought was a very mediocre packaging. Uh So so I think that, and I also know that if you adorn yourself in gold, but the inside is not gold, then it's a kind of fool's gold and it doesn't fool anybody. I know you don't have to try quite as hard when you're getting that, that when you're in when your soul is animating you, it does things that, you know, brush on highlighters are never going to (laughs) create that sparkle. But yes, I do agree with you. And particularly about upping your game with modesty, it's an interesting thing. Um, I I felt totally invisible when I showed everything. And the minute I started to not use my physical self as the... um, as the means of attention, I could finally feel seen. Mm-hmm. So there is, a, I think, an inverse relationship between putting it all out there and feeling invisible. And I think most people would not agree with that. But I, I, from my own experience, I can tell you that when we want to be seen, and we want to be seen only physically, versus when we want to be seen as physical beings housing the most exquisite part of ourselves, it has an exponential impact on the success of that endeavor.
1: And those words are really, really powerful. And it's interesting because, you know, I do work a lot with teenage girls. And um, I think this is a difficult message to just give over to them. I don't think this is something you can say it, you can say it, you can say it. It doesn't necessarily um resonate in the same way that like you're saying it to me now however over the course of time the more time that they spend with me I do see and through the questions that they ask and through through the the way that they're showing up I do see that that they can over the course of time they can acknowledge the the deep truth in what you're expressing right now and I think that it's a process. And I think sometimes it takes you know lots of different experiences for them to realize that. but I don't know. would you agree that this is something very difficult to kind of tell to a, to a a girl in today's world who is who is not feeling that way?
2: Well, I wouldn't even bother telling them. I think there's a misfit not to speak where you won't be heard. And I think the teenage years, in their very nature, are ones of deep insecurity and a lack of sense of self, and they're going to cling to whatever it is makes them feel they belong. So I think it's very important for teenage girls to dress the way their peers dress, to look the way their their friends look. And even though, you know, often mothers will say, well, you know, you're an individual and you should be an individual. It's anathema to a teenager. I don't want to be an individual. I want to be accepted as part of the group. So it has to be a decision made on their own. And one of the things I've noticed over the years, and I noticed this as a secular teenager, and I noticed this as a as a more ritually observant adult, is that oftentimes young people will come to this, not through, oh, I'm gonna do up my buttons or I'm gonna cover my arms. No, they come to it through using clothing as a way of um, expressing their early politicization. So they'll go, I only wear vintage clothes. I go to the Salvation Army or the Goodwill. I buy vintage because it means that their external clothing is a representation of what their values are. I don't believe in excessive consumption. I don't believe in sweatshops for children. I'm not buying at the local. I'll pick the place because I know, you know, eight-year-old kids are putting this together. I'm going to buy stuff that is already out there. I'm going to make it my own look so that I'm contributing to the health of the planet, which is the zeitgeist these days. Or then they'll move into you know I'm going to look goth or I'm going to look I'm going to look glam or I'm going to look sporty because I want my my clothing to represent my values you know just I I can't tell you the hundreds of dollars I spent on NBA jerseys for my kids you know when they were young because all they wanted to do was I want to be Shaq or you know I want to be Michael Jordan I want you can see I'm dating myself I want to be whomever. Um, So I think that it happens naturally that they go from there. And especially with teenage girls, their first concern is that they look like their friends. Their second concern is that boys will like them. Mm -hmm. And then their third concern is that they have asserted a value system. That's why a lot of teenage girls become vegetarian or vegan or suddenly they go to their mother. I'm not eating this anymore and I won't have this anymore. And I'm not, it's an assertion of their soul. I mean, obviously they don't get that adult soul till they're 12 and 13 years old. And so now they're gonna start trying to figure out who they are. So the whole idea of dressing modesty is not on their radar unless their rebellion is a religious one. Hmm. But later on, as they have more of a sense of themselves and who they are, they are able, I think, to internalize and understand the value of downplaying that which distracts from truly being seen it's and interesting that in that you put it in yes. that
0: order because i mean obviously that is not only with teen girls but with every with, with with many people there is sort of that tension in which you know they want to grow spiritually but then this tension sort of comes up where one second hashem god made me with a certain desire to express myself and maybe there's something that if I'm trying to become more and more religious or subscribe to that program, or modest or religious, so I'll feel maybe like I don't have the way, I don't have that way to express myself because you're Ooh. telling me how to dress, you're telling me how, how to fit in, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you're saying that better give them first that freedom to really express themselves as an individual, and then to find that place of modesty or religiosity um, after already feeling that they've expressed themselves.
2: Listen, Rabbi Shlomo and Tvora, I share with you this because I became um, passionate about Jewish life and all of its um, mitzvahs, its its, its ways of connecting with the almighty um, and ritual observance at 40 years old. I had my children in my early to mid thirties and we were totally secular until, you know, they were alternative, they were, I think six and three. I made a lot of mistakes. I tell you this and your listeners this, with great humility. Um, I wanted desperately for my children to look and act like the community that I was trying to join. And as such, I was punitive and disciplining in areas that I should have let go of. I should have said, you know, all in good time. I, I, everything I'm telling you today, I have learned in hindsight and retrospect from making mistakes that I would not make again, which is that with certain children at certain ages, you know, even my rabbi, I remember, I sent my kids to a, a particular school where it was an all boys high school, you know, started in grade eight.
1: Um, Maybe for our listeners, we should just specify that you are talking about your sons, yes.
2: I'm speaking about my sons, I apologize. Um, And I sent them to these schools, which were more modern, let's just say than the more far-right schools. So there was interaction with the girls' version of the school, but I didn't want them to go on the Shabbatons because the girls were there. And I didn't want them to talk to girls because that's what I thought, you know. They were both of them were going to be Rabbi Akiva, right? I couldn't understand why they weren't crawling on top of like the the the, the midrash in the freezing, listening in for the shears, and they just wanted to play PlayStation. Um, <laughs> never mind that we still lived downtown, and you know my neighbors were across the board in their and and that I'd uprooted them from their pluralistic day school and sent them to this you know pseudo <laughs> forget that they were on my program, weren't they, and so um I switched them to the school and I remember one of my children just wigging out on me that I wouldn't let him go on the Shabbaton and I went to speak to my very religious rabbi about it he said how could you send your child to this school and not let him do what everyone else is allowed to do are you trying to kill him If you don't want him in that environment, change his schools. But if you're satisfied with that school, you must help him find a mentor so that he can set certain boundaries, but he must be able to do what his peers are doing there. Otherwise, you're going to turn him off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You think? Wow. And my rub was really clear. The dignity of the child, of the young person. A mother a father cannot set their children up to fail with their own and you know a lot of the times and this goes for completely outside of religion this is a basic psychological precept which if you know anything about um, family systems therapy the Bowenian system and all of that stuff you know that what the children react to is not always what's going on but the anxiety of the parent so my anxiety was so off the charts with I gotta get this right. How do I raise religious kids? I don't have a flipping clue. I was a wildachaya. I was a wild animal. What am I gonna do? What if they turn out like I was? Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? And so my anxiety, even as I'm going, oh, you know, put on your kippa? was more like, put on your kippa? was what they were feeling, right? <laughs> and, and that anxiety transferred, and that's why it's so important for a parent to be at ease and at peace in their own trajectory and respect the, the process of their children. Because if you don't, oh boy, I can tell you, I made a big fat mess and it took me a couple of years to clean it up mm-hmm. and a lot of apologizing.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, that's amazing that you were able to pick up on that it's interesting we actually just had a whole episode where we where we spoke about this and the necessity for a parent to really be vulnerable that way and say you know I'm a human being and I might have messed up over there and to you know backtrack and it sounds like you had the ability you were able to do that You, you caught it quick enough
2: no I didn't catch it I had both of them at age 18 you know three years apart come to me to tell me a litany of what I'd done wrong. <laughs> okay, oh boy. Um, and it was, it was very humbling. But the first one I cried for a week. Mm-hmm.
1: This was expressed oh. to you when they were 18 years old.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, you did this and you did this. And when I did this, you said this and you did this. And this is why I'm doing this. And Listen, I did it to my own mother. So, you know, it's a long time. <laughs> coming. But with the first one, I, like I said, I cried for a week. And the second one came to me I realized it's kind of a rite of passage and I said I'm going to give you a little piece of it, wisdom now that I learned from when your brother did this I'm going to apologize to you clearly for the mistakes I made inadvertently through lack of knowledge as Oprah says when you know better you do better but I'm also going to forgive myself watch me walk away forgiving myself my friend because one day when your children do this to you, you're going to have to know how to forgive yourself. Mm. And I didn't cry for two weeks. I forgave myself. And I made changes in myself. And as I became less anxious, less controlling, less manipulative, less punitive, one of my kids actually said to me once, boy, I wish I was your student.
0: Mm. Wow.
2: I'm sharing really with you powerful. vulnerably. I'm sharing this with you because because I, I, it, for whomever is listening what we do out of love and with the best intentions can often be wrong. And the greatest gift you can give your adult children is your ability to apologize for what you didn't know.
1: That's I know beautiful.
2: 50 and 60-year-old women who Come to me, who learn with me, who still are upset and angry at their parents in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. And and so now there's no time wasted. My relationship with my sons is is pu bly and Hara so beautiful. A lot of that had to do with me. Um, what's the Hasidic expression? Um, um where the detachment, the, the submission, the sweetening. The, the, right. I had a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And now would you say that it's more uh, driven by them, driven by you, equal? Because I know you know, there, there is often that tension with parents and adult children. Who's supposed to be the one driving the relationship when maybe it doesn't come naturally? And often we'll come across parents that'll be like, well, it really should be them. They should be coming to us. And that creates a lot of distance. Yeah.
2: So what I remember from the time I was seven, and this is probably part of my problem, was I was born thinking I was 40 and um, wanting to be 40.
0: I think all of our kids fall into that category. <laughs> I think left. they do. And
2: kids do. I remember fantasizing, lying in my bed going, I can't wait till I have my own apartment. I'm going to have my own fridge. I'm not going to have to ask if I can open the fridge. I'm going to, not going to have to ask if... If I can stay up a little longer, all I wanted was independence. Now, not all people come out that way, but I did. And I feel like what one has to do is to be very clear about one's standards and expectations and desires. And also to be very clear internally that The fact that they're your standards and expectations and desires does not guarantee that the soul that you are raising is going to agree and not push back against them. You never waver from your stand. And I have never once wavered from what I believe. What I have ceased to do is to be emotionally... um, punishing, or, or allow my children to feel for even one second. I, I think the problem is is that most young people equate disapproval with a lack of love. But as you get older, you realize that someone can love you and not give you the approval or the permission that you ask for. So there's a period of time where you have to wait till a child is old enough to understand <coughs> I don't agree. I don't support this choice. I don't approve of this choice, and I love you. What can I make you for dinner?
1: Phenomenal, phenomenal. That is amazing.
2: And that's where I'm at. My kids know where I stand, where they stand, what I think, and what the things they do and don't do. To to tell you though that the naches I get from them, the, the 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 pride I have in them that. My, my respect for them. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that I feel that way for them. And so, of course, they want to be near me.
0: Right. That is amazing. I, w- I would love Beautiful. to backtrack a little bit and hear a little bit more of your story. And, and two things come to mind. First of all, what was it that suddenly triggered this change that you decided to change the trajectory of your life? And also, because our listeners, quite, quite diverse, um but for to go i mean you met you said earlier that it was 40 that it really happened and you know again i i would not have said this but you said that you're 62 i believe (laughs) so i mean and i know that you've been uh definitely inspiring people for probably 15 20 years so that means that in a very short time which i think you alluded to earlier you went from someone who was let's just say out of the fold, they're not necessarily you know, living this life to not only living it, but inspiring others to do it. So how did that transition happen?
2: Um, well, it's kind of, it's a sort of a twofold thing. Um, and I will share this for your listeners because I have his permission to do so. Number one, I would not share my husband's private stuff without his permission. And also because I, I feel like, you know, that's not over till the fat rabbits and sings. <laughs> I can say that to you. Because I've
0: never seen any fat, are there fat rabbits? I don't know. <laughs>
2: well, you know, it's that old thing. That's not old, it's over till the fat lady sings. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. from I get opera. It. I got and, it. Um, what happened was I uh, married my husband um, 33 years ago. And he wasn't Jewish. And while we were recording, he said, I'm happy to convert. I said, Nah, it's OK, kids will be Jewish. I don't care. I don't believe in anything anyway. And um, and we married. And with, we had two children in quick succession. And I um, found myself always annoyed at him on the high holidays, even though I was like driving up to my mother's in Huxmere and Budera, right, and, and the food wasn't kosher and, you know, whatever. I, I would get mad at him. It's like he just didn't get it. He didn't understand. Like, why aren't you as into it as I am? We're going. It's it's, it's, it's Pesach. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll be home. you know. And I'm like, well, what? It, so even the cultural piece was missing. And the minute you have a family, suddenly you have to decide, what, what is my family going to look like? And it, internally, even though I thought none of my secular Jewish bringing mattered to me, I can assure you that it did. And when did it? Around things that were... My family of origins, Jewish behaviors. So, if my husband didn't behave the way my father behaved around Pesach or Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you know, even though I have a very, very clear memory of going to my zayda's Orthodox Shural on Yom Kippur and then going directly after services for Chinese food, I mean, I have all of these memories. I was still in shul, right? And I, mm-hmm. I still sat, you know, with my bubba, and oh, anyway, there was. It was, uh, my husband read in a uh, newspaper in my mother's apartment that he wouldn't be able to be buried beside me in a Jewish cemetery and it Mm. completely wigged him out. And I I said, who cares, we'll be dead. You know, what do you you think? (laughs) You think we're going to be like chatting and holding hands under there? We'll be dead. Who cares? That's not what
0: happens? Okay.
2: I really like hello and
0: <laughs> you know like playing footsie under there you know?
2: <laughs> and yeah well, okay so you're being very subtle rabbi but that's essentially what i said in a more graphic way you know what do what you think is gonna happen <laughs> like we'll be dead yeah. as i always say to him but i'll be really thin my thighs will be so thin i'll be practically skeletal <laughs> it'll be fabulous anyway so probably look at my best like six months in anyway
0: Bye, Adrian. I guess you have that window there right yeah.
2: <laughs> after, the after that it's like decayed but for a right. while oops like this anyway so so I he said well you know Adrian, I, I believe that there's something when you die I believe don't you believe in God can you imagine we've been married with two kids we never even the word God God never came up wow. and I said, no, I I believe that when you die, you become, you know, worms and maggots. And um, no, I don't believe there's anything afterwards. And he goes, well, I really do. He said, you know, I grew up in the Catholic church and I have to be honest with you. I, I never believed in the middleman and I never believed that the guy hanging there was God. How could it be God if it was a person? And I didn't believe that I had to like send my prayers to God through the priest I said wow you sound like a jew that's very jewy sounding because that's really what the jewish system is and he said i think i'm going to look into conversion and i went, knock yourself out dude but i'm not coming with you thanks i went to jew gel no thank you you know so i'm to hebrew school and he began his process and on
1: his own without you adrian yes oh he really and started then, it without
2: you started without me and then he went to the second process which was uh, um the second denomination he went to Um, but they said I had to be there I was not amused but I went and after a year and a half and a lot of exams and a lot of what I would call a mile wide but an inch deep of learning um, they took him to the mikveh. he was fortunately did not require a full circumcision because he was born in an era where men were circumcised, even if they mm. weren't Jewish, but they had to like draw a little blood, you know, wasn't fun. And he he came out of the mikvah and he was all excited. And, you know, then he he said, I think we should have a kosher house. And I said, okay, well, you know, who are you gonna call, you know, Jewish Ghostbusters. I know who to call to get my house koshered. And I called in this incredible, because in those days I was on TV, so I guess they heard my name and thought, "Woohoo! Look at we've got a we got a live one who wants to go to our house." And they sent like a like a really high up guy, wow. down to my little tiny house. And I remember him sitting on a little chair, and um, and my husband said, "Oh, so look, like, you know I converted and I love it and I put on Tefillin every morning and I you know and I pray and you know we're keeping Shabbat and and I love it so much and you know." Um, But, you know, the house, we would like anybody to be able to eat here, we'd like it to be koshered. And and he said, I could just watch the wheels in his head going, how did they get a conversion if their house isn't kosher? That
0: (laughs) that moment.
2: (laughs) That moment. And he said, can I see this certificate to my husband? My husband said, certainly. And he happily got up, opened his film bag. He was carrying it with him, staring at it all the time. He was so into it. Aww. And my mem- husband was a big rock and roller, like a famous rock and roller. So like, if I went from Prada to prayer, he went from like air guitar to, to like air dovening, right? <laughs> and, you know, we, he showed him the piece of paper and this rabbi. And from this, I learned how you give bad news to someone. He sat in that chair and he stared at it, and he looked at my husband, who is beyond grand, and he started to cry. He just started to cry. And he said, I I can't, I don't want to, I I can't, don't make me, I can't tell you this. But according to the strictness of standards, which I suspect, he turned to my husband, you want to adhere to, because you could tell my husband was like on fire. This conversion is not going to be considered kosher in the land of Israel. Yeah.
0: And by the way, from personal experience as a rabbi, because I've had many moments like this, that is the worst part of being a rabbi is when you have to inform somebody that their Judaism is somewhat questionable. It is a terrible, terrible uh, feeling to have to, you know, have that conversation.
2: Oh, so you've been through this before.
0: Oh, all the time. i think anyone within our in in our circles you know and again not not always is it just because of a flawed conversion sometimes it just has to do with the family lineage and you know it's uh it's deeply hurtful especially in that situation deeply hurtful to a person you know who now i I think it's also it's now suddenly you as a rabbi as a human being now you're suddenly telling me how god looks at me you know it's 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 really it's it's not pleasant
2: i I can imagine that's true and that is why these man's tears went further than any words you could see it was breaking his heart but I wasn't there yet and um I was still in the fashion industry still at my show and I stood up and essentially said Adrian can like eat pork chops all day long on Yom Kippur and she's always going to be Jewish and you I'm afraid and I stood up and I went like this like to go get out of my house which is I'm sure you've seen that before my husband goes like this with my hand and he turned to the rabbi and he said I read that when you have a really kosher conversion it's as though you get a different soul and I don't think that happened Hmm. so I would like to start again oh my god all I could think of was no (laughs) back to Jew jail (laughs) oh my god and yeah new
0: sentencing
2: and what happened was we were sent back to another rabbinical court. Whew. They asked my husband to leave the room, and they said to me, "Your husband is an angel. He's a tzaddik. He is the highest form of righteousness. We take him in a heartbeat. You're a problem. Mm. You are not going to support him. You have to figure out if you can get on track. Otherwise," he said, "You know, in Judaism, obviously, people we don't try to." push people away from Judaism because we're elitist. The reason the rabbis want you to, you know, especially a righteous person is, if you're not obligated, Judaism doesn't say you have to be a Jew to get to heaven. You know, you, you don't, you just have to, there's seven laws, you know, the decency of the Noah high laws, and, and you're, you've got a free pass. And essentially they're saying to him, you are so holy. If you take all this on, and then neglect it. We have a problem. You're being looked at differently. We would like to save you from an obligation that you don't require because you're already good. You know what I mean? <clears throat> My husband said, I want to be obligated. So they said to me, we need you to go and learn. Now I had not had a Jewish education since that last conversion, which was like <laughs> snore fest, right? It was like, Neh. and they sent us separately And I started to learn the kind of Torah that I teach now.
1: Hmm.
2: Which was a relevant instruction for living, a way to join soul and body, to, to operate on all cylinders moving at once. I'm a very sensual person. I like everything of the senses. And it was a way of engaging all my senses that I didn't even understand and and awakening a soul that I didn't even feel before. And and so ultimately that's what happened. And he had a final conversion and now you could eat my house, Rabbi. It's completely kosher.
0: And you were so inspired by everything. That you were learning that you just said, forget like um, I guess you will you already had a platform. You were already used to giving and teaching. So it was now just about taking that platform and redirecting it to well, that's you, what she said
1: when yeah. she said she knew in Alex she's gonna start teaching in Alex. Right, right. And they were like, go try it.
2: And what's interesting for uh and 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 and, and Rabbi is that I finally had a really good script right? <laughs> like this, this is written by God and and, right. on, and all of our sages. And and so I was really careful in the beginning to say every piece of wisdom that you're attributing to me, Adrian Gold, who is now Adrian Gold Davis. I finally, after 30 years of marriage, took my husband's name. Um, everything you're learning that you're attributing to me is not me. This is for all of us. This is yours. I am just a trained communicator. I spent 15 years on TV. I know how to give over a message. I know how to to moderate my voice. I knew how to tell a story. That's what I did for a living, except it's no longer about, you know, what to wear with this outfit and now it's about how to behave in this situation. So, uh, and and then it, the deal was sealed after September 11th when um, um, the newsroom that I was working at in, in a particular Canadian morning show, um, the morning of September 11th, I watched the, the station and Um, some, one of the anchors said, oh, look, they're dancing in the streets of Palestine. And it freaked me out. And I picked up the phone, I called the control room. And in a series of swear words, I essentially said, it's not Palestine, it's Israel. And, um, And then the following week, I went back to work and they started asking questions. I was already, you know, Sabbath observant. And there happened to be a news item about the fact that Ontario was changing the 40-hour work week to 46 hours. And conversation was going with, at the table. And I said, well, you know, it's an interesting thing to me because a few years ago, I think I was 42. I think I became a Sabbath observant at 40, so 22 years ago. And maybe, no, 39. I was 39. So, um, and they said, um, I said, well, you know, I don't work from Friday night till Saturday night, it was written into my contract. And one of them said, well, why not? And I explained what Shabbat was. I explained the principle of being a human being, not a human doing, about disconnecting in order to connect. And they were fascinated and it kept coming up for a few weeks. They wanted stuff about me, but the producers were not amused. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing and then when all of the conspiracy theories started oh you know Israelis caused it and you know the Jews were out of the building and yada 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 then my rabbi said to me this is your Esther moment just like Queen Esther was you know merited to be in the castle she thought she just won a beauty pageant but really she was there to save her people he said you got to start speaking up about being a Jew about the land of Israel, I said, how am I going to fit that in, you know, between what hemline is in this year? He said, we'll figure it out when you do those ethics conversations. And I did. And they warned me 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 shut up enough. This is not your platform. And I got a lot of hate mail tell Adrian to go back to banana republic and keep her out of our republics, you know, Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. And I did it until my contract was up and no longer renewed and Which, somebody had take it.
0: Wow. Which is I think an ongoing I think all pop stars and all celebrities have to face that challenge at some point um, where or sports players also where the question is how much do you use your stage for the things that you believe in and I, I think that's always going to be an ongoing controversy there are many fans and audiences that say no 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 like we look towards entertainment because we want to we want to escape i guess i'm speaking more about politics more than more than religion um but it's interesting to see how you know some celebrities view their place to really share and try to inspire and others say no we're gonna keep we're gonna keep those those things separate but it sounds like you really felt that using the platform that you had you have to speak up you need to make your voice known
2: well i feel like it's interesting that you should raise that Because if you look at most celebrities, as their careers are beginning to wane, and some of them even before, if you look at Madonna and Angelina Jolie and Sean Penn and all of those people. When you are famous for something that is not that important in the final analysis, it's wonderful that you have a great voice. It's fantastic that you're a great actor reading somebody's script. It's amazing that you can sink that ball from you know, a, a three point shot from across the court. All of those things are great, but the human condition yearns for a deeper and more meaningful import. And I think that what happens is when you hit the top of your game, as so many people do, it's like they're all of a sudden Peggy Lee is singing, is that all there is in your ear? And you're like going, "Hmm." Hey, I'm not just a ball player, an actor, a a singer. I'm also a human being with ideas and they start to attach themselves to causes. Not so much because they're using their platform, but because there's a hole inside of them that's shaped like meaning. And so they're searching for meaning and they go out and they find it where if it's you know, look at Brigitte Bardot, you know, you're probably too young to even know she was the most famous French actress and beauty queen, you know, in, in, in the 50s and 60s, you know, le- finished her life with an animal s- sanctuary right there, you know, Angelina Jolie adopted children from from across Africa and, and, and Vietnam and, and so on, where, where people when you have it all in terms of what the world says it all is, when you have it all, but you don't have an investment in meaning and purpose on a larger scale, it niggles at you until you force yourself to attach to something. Hmm. And, and so I don't think that's the same thing necessarily as Julian Adelson have, having to speak out. I think that was a pintle Yid, that was a Jew going, don't you dare, anti-Semitism is unacceptable because he doesn't have other causes. He spoke up and I feel for me that I spoke up because it was a moment of crisis and I was in the right place. Yeah, I don't think I did it to use my platform. I did it because I was in the palace and they couldn't shut me down. It was live television.
0: That's incredible. Incredible. We, we're we're running out of time, but here's what I'd like to ask you: Can you speak a little bit to what you've created, you know, together with Lori Palatnik and that whole thing? I mean, here and
2: Deborah Bucksbaum and, and,
0: and her role in that. But you know, Hi. on the one hand, when we look at the Jewish people high level, and we look at the Pew study, and we see, and and you know, those numbers are concerning. We see people checking out. We see less and less connection. And then we step into this world of Jewish Women's Renaissance Project Momentum and what you're creating with this women's movement. And it's like this oasis, you know, of growth going in the other direction. So what are you seeing, you know, what's happening there and, and how will this create ripples throughout the Jewish people?
2: Well, first of all, the the pride and honor I feel working for Momentum is impossible to overstate. Um, Momentum believes that the center key to impact to changing the world through a renaissance of Jewish values or just to repair this fractured planet is the Jewish mother. Why? Because she has an impact on the entire family. And when you introduce a Jewish mother, to the beauty of the operating system of her faith. When you show her that there is reams that she can draw on for wisdom in parenting, wisdom in marriage, wisdom in community building, wisdom in taking action, wisdom in in, in how how to deal with things go wrong, how to teach her children, that it's all there. Most of us young parents flounder. We know that things around us are ugly. We don't know how to repair them. We don't know what to do. But in our own backyards as Jews, we have this operating system that speaks to as much or as little as you want of it. And Judaism is not all or nothing. So we figured if we take these women outside of their day-to-day lives where they're not somebody's mother or somebody's boss or somebody's employee or somebody's daughter or whatever, but they are just themselves. And we empty out a space within them by taking care of their needs where they can learn where they come from, that we arm them with the tools to impact their families. And if you impact enough families, you change communities. And if you change enough communities, you can change the world. And because of Lori Palatnik and the other seven women uh, who were part of the original eight women of diverse Jewish backgrounds and status, created this and it took off like a rocket i travel around the world for this organization speaking and following up and i cannot even express to you what it feels like to go from wichita to to you know to to kansas city to to melbourne and sydney and perth to you know uh, buenos aires and to see an army of women who are saying We believe in Jewish values, we believe in taking action, we believe in unity without uniformity, we believe in in, in having a connection to the land of Israel. When you see what these women, this army of women can do, and doesn't our sources tell us that it was in the merit of the righteous women that we merited to leave slavery in Egypt and it will be in the merit of the righteous Jewish woman that we will repair this world. And that is what we've got. Now, since COVID, when we had to create our own pivot, you know, we have podcasts. I have that weekly Momentum Boost television show or, you know, internet show. We have incredible educational resources and books and a speaker circuit. We are not just a trip company now, but tens of thousands of women have gone through this and their families and their children have been awakened and their lights are so lit and just as a candle can light many candles without losing any of its own light. So we have lit candles all around the world in 29 countries. And if I could take, you know, a 10,000 foot above and I asked all of them to light a candle and everyone to light a candle who's been impacted by an act of kindness from that family that was a Momentum family and so on, I think this globe would be glowing.
1: It would be glowing, Adrian, and it's unbelievable. Your words are so, they resonate so deeply, and it was really astounding and beautiful to see that the second that COVID did hit, the way that momentum, and I know that some of it had already been being worked on, and it was almost like as if God was already like, yeah. like, you know grooming momentum so that everything was real actually Lori had said to me like it was almost as if everything was in place and then COVID hit and bam right it was like time to launch all of the things and really flew into action and we um you know from the lab experience and the, the the women that we work with we are very very grateful and we see we see firsthand the impact that when women are feeling empowered and inspired and aware and knowledgeable about the jewish values that we have which really many times they didn't even realize were jewish values sometimes they they don't realize what they're coming from sometimes they don't people don't even recognize this beautiful you know literally this diamond that we're sitting upon and um we are very very grateful that that they're able to experience that and You know, we're very grateful for the work that we can do with Momentum. And um, we- By the
0: way, I just want to say, I'm on the men's side of these things. And then I'm seeing, you know, when the women have it and then it catches fire, the men are like, whatever my wife is on, like, (laughs) give me some of that. You know, I want some.
2: I I don't want to embarrass you guys, but I have to tell you the reason that Momentum created in partnership is because we can only do so much, but you need community. And what I watched your community do this year, when I look at the metamorphosis and so you and your butterfly wings, you know, and I watch your podcast. I was just
0: saying that she has become like people identified for with like a butterfly. Like when they see butterflies, it reminds them, Oh, we thought of you. We saw a butterfly
2: yesterday. I get the more, more
1: butterfly cards and fun and butterfly accessories than I've ever gotten before.
2: Well, yeah, I to you know Momentum is so honored to partner with Lev, with metamorphosis, with, and I personally, Emma, tell me to you and your husband. I I cannot wait to read your new book, Rabbi. Do you have it there?
0: We're gonna send one. I, you know, we're out. I think we're out of it. We got to get some more here. But I'll we're just order it. On. To I'll,
2: let me just order it on Amazon. We're gonna
1: get one to you. I actually think you're heading to Israel tomorrow, Adrian. I think that's the quickest way for us to get you one in Israel than Canada. We'll get to you
2: quicker in Israel than in for Canada. For some reason,
0: Canada. I don't know. You think? I mean, it's a neighboring forget country, but it's like a
1: forget yeah. it. <laughs>
2: Don't even think about it. Honestly, I'm just, I'm so honored. Momentum is so honored and I personally am so honored and and I will never forget your sushi salad for as long (laughs) as I live. And no matter how many times I came to your house and I did third meal there once, if you remember, and you made this sushi salad, I have tried to replicate it nonstop for four years and it doesn't taste like yours we
1: look forward to serving you sushi salad once again please god at our home adrian you're a gift you're really a gift i told my husband that i think that different people have different magical sauces you know and i think that one thing that i have really learned from you and have taken from you is that you somehow manage to make each individual feel like they are your world they are their own shining stars and i see that you, you know you just you have you have that is your magic your magic power. You just, you use your smile and your warmth and your words to light people's souls, not just through the wisdom that you teach, but actually like quite, you know, physically lighting their souls, just making people feel like a million bucks. And it's really, really something special. And you've lit our souls today. Thank you for spending these this time with us we've right before from, this
0: trip. We've gone from fashion to Judaism to sushi and sauce now. So <laughs> we've, we've covered everything. So thank you again, Agent. We really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. And just to spend time with you was great. Thank you. Have the most wonderful, wonderful rest of the day. And I can't wait to see you again in person.
0: Thank you you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to shlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.